0: Hello to our listeners. Welcome to the Women Governance Trailblazers podcast, where we listen to the journeys of trailblazing women in the corporate governance field, their passions, struggles, and commitment to improving how companies and boards function. My name is Liz Dunchy and my co-host is Courtney Camlett.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: Courtney and I are both passionate about governance, and we want to spotlight some of the amazing women who share that passion. We're connecting with guests from different paths and industries to hear their perspectives on what surprised them in their career and where they think the field of corporate governance is going. For this episode, we are talking with Christina Brizzani, who is Managing Director and Head of Corporate Advisory at William Blair, which is a boutique financial services firm focused on investment banking, institutional asset management, and private wealth management. In her role there, Christina focuses on advising public companies on all things mergers and acquisitions related. So fun times. Welcome, Christina. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today.
2: Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited to speak with you guys.
1: We're excited too. So Christina, tell us about your path to heading the corporate advisory team at William Blair and what type of clients and services you're focusing
2: on right now. So I, I think I'll go backwards, um, starting from current kind of to how I got started. So currently I lead our corporate advisory team, which is a team focused solely on our public company clients. So we partner with our sector teams um, to really help our public company clients think through all things that public companies encounter through their life cycle. So Everything from acquisitions to divestitures to defense, whether it's from an activist or um, an unsolicited suitor, a sale of of the company, um, a, you know, take private, um, you know, kind of the gamut, everything that a public company would face. And, um, you know, we form relationships with these companies and then. Over time, depending upon what they're looking for, um, our advice on we we help them out and bring the right people, whether it's you know M and A related, equity capital markets related, sector related, um, and we really try to be holistic advisors to our clients. So we formed that group about three years ago now, and um, you know. When I first joined Blair five years ago, we didn't have this capacity, and the reason we decided we needed the group is that we had so many wonderful clients that we built relationships with on the research side, on the capital market side, and we really kind of were helping them to go public and then never talking to them again or not talking to them enough and right. so we formed this team um again to to form those relationships and really give give advice to our clients across our life cycle.
1: I have to say from the public company client side, having that type of relationship is always really helpful because you're so ingrained and understand the business that it makes for resolutions of things, advice giving much easier.
2: For sure. I mean, it's wonderful. When you have a a long relationship with a client and you know them, you know their business, you know the ups and downs, and there's a level of trust there, too. And I think that's part of why I joined William Blair from the bulge bracket that I had spent 20 years at um, was that, you know, I, I loved that under our private partnership structure, there's not that pressure to be transaction oriented um you know, to meet quarterly estimates and quarterly expectations, and so you know at Blair we have the the latitude to really form those long standing relationships and it's better for our clients it's it's more fun that way too absolutely, and in so many
0: ways the i p o is just the beginning of the story, and so you know there's as you alluded to, there's so much that goes on after you're public that <laughs> Those those longstanding relationships can help with. Um, So, what real time changes are you seeing, Christina, in the way your clients are approaching corporate governance and ESG in light of all of the challenging economic, political, and regulatory issues that we're facing right now? Are you seeing people or companies step back from initiatives that don't directly add to the current year bottom line? Are you seeing them refine their areas of focus or refine their messaging? Um, give us the scoop on that.
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, we're seeing a little bit of everything and it kind of depends on where you are. So, you know, I classify it almost as the haves and the have nots. So the folks who are in a strong position from a capital perspective, while they might be, you know, having some operational you know, uh, issues just given the the economic environment, they're not in dire straits. And so I would consider those the haves. And I think they're still thinking pretty aggressively about how to really build long-term value um, for their shareholders. And so whether that is Raising capital because they can, um, or pursuing acquisitions because there's not as much competition. Um, that's one of the things we've seen a lot of our, mm. our public company clients kind of get more active in pursuing targets that they've been monitoring because mm. in the past it was hard to compete against sponsors. They were really aggressive. And a lot of our public company clients just given their internal processes. Couldn't move quickly enough to compete, couldn't pay the right prices to compete. And so, you know, a lot of that competition has has gone away as interest rates have risen and sponsors have found it harder to compete. So um, you know, we also see those halves, you know, continuing to evaluate their portfolios. I think while, you know, we are working on a number of divestitures and knock on wood, I think we'll be announcing one next week. Um, you know, I think. It's a little bit harder to make the case of saying, "Look, it's a wonderful M and A market. Let's go sell at a high multiple and create value," because mm-hmm. multiples, you know, are coming down a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there's the tale of the have-nots, and and we're working with a lot of those clients as well, where they need capital. Um, and if if you don't have a positive catalyst or a real reason to be out in the market, it's a tough time to raise capital, and so. With those clients, you know, we're thinking more creatively around structuring different types of deals, tapping different types of investors than maybe they have talked to in the past and really try to find structures that work for them. Um, And a lot of those clients too, I think, are saying, well, wait a minute, if the only way I can raise capital is through a really dilutive structure right now, do I want to do that? Do I really want to try to create value on my own or am I better off searching out a partner to do that with? Um, You know, I was just at a a closing dinner for a merger that we did, uh, you know, a little while ago where that was the case. You know, we had two public companies who were subscale who both needed capital and they could have each gone out individually and raised really dilutive capital or they could have put themselves together and, you know, had a better chance of raising capital, but also have a lot of synergies. And so that's what they chose to do. And we helped them structure that transaction. And, you know, it's still too early to tell whether it's really going to create a lot of long term value. But, um, you know, we have clients thinking about that as well. Yeah. Uh, and And then kind of a third bucket, I'd say, you know, there are a lot of clients who just. Don't want to be public anymore in this environment. It's it's tough, right? I, I think yeah. you know, valuations have come down. Um, shit, you know, they're they're living quarter to quarter instead of really being able to invest in their businesses for the long term. And they are kind of scratching their heads and saying, wait a minute, what, why am I doing this? Um, you know, and so if they can you know structure something that creates value for their current shareholders and then allows them to you know, create more value as a private company and really be able to execute on their strategic initiatives, um, they're exploring that.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Are you starting to see more companies think about potentially going private, doing some fixes, and then either some type of an exit either to a private equity, another private equity, or going back public after several years?
2: Yes, um, we're having a lot of conversations, more so than we have in the past. Right now, um, on both sides of it, frankly, you know, we're talking with our public company clients uh, for all the reasons you know th- that I just mentioned. We're also talking to a lot of private equity firms who are looking at the value creation possibilities for some of these public companies um, who aren't being properly valued in the public markets, and they're saying, "Look, I can." create a lot of value here. Um, and so we're hearing it from both ends. And I think that the the thing that you need or the magic that you need to make it work is, you know, you need the, the debt to work, right? So it has to be a cash flow generating company. Um, and, you know, you have to either find a, a partner who's willing to put up the debt, or, you know, you have to have a private equity sponsor who's willing to put up all equity and then, Take the gamble that they can finance us with some debt uh, when things get a little better in the financing markets. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Um, And so you talked about a lot
1: of competition is going away as the interest rates rise. Are you seeing middle market companies be at greater risk of unsolicited takeover bids right now? And, And and sort of thinking about that, are there things, are there capital risks and opportunities that boards should be particularly attuned to right now? They should be thinking about, aware of.
2: Yeah, we're absolutely having a lot of conversations with our clients about that right now, because as valuations have come down, um, a lot of our our management teams and our boards are saying, "Well, look, if someone comes in and puts a 30, 40, 50% premium, that doesn't recognize what I think the long-term value of the company is. But from a fiduciary perspective, my hands are kind of tied. I'm going to have to talk to them. And so what we do with a lot of our clients is we come in before that happens and we do the work around really understanding their long-term financial plan um we stress test it and and then you know help them understand what the value implications of that plan are and what the levers are so that when and if someone does come inbound they'll know well, that's a good offer. That's not a good offer. Um, and it'll just help them be prepared um, in terms of how to deal with it, you know, when, when and if it happens. I, I equate it to, you know, an umbrella, like you hope you never need it on a rainy day. Um, but it's one of those things that we, you know, we provide our clients with so that if it does, they're prepared and, you know, they're not going to get wet. So is that something
0: that they that the clients reach out to you to request because they feel like they might be vulnerable? Or is that something that um, you sort of promote to the um, clients who you think might be vulnerable? Um, I think I think
2: it's both. Yeah. I I think a lot of times. You know, because we monitor where companies are trading versus their peers, and so if someone you know is looking pretty undervalued compared to their peers, then we'll proactively go out and say, "Look, you guys should really be, you know, making sure your your eyes are dotted and your T's are crossed." There are other times where you know, just in our regular dialogue with our clients, they say, "Look, I have a board meeting coming up, and I think it'd be helpful for you guys to come in and talk to our board and." also talk to them about how to be prepared and what to do and what not to do if something happens. Um, And so, you know, we do that quite a bit as well. Are you seeing
0: as part of those conversations, any greater focus on board composition or board skills in addition to the um, financial valuation
2: side? No, I think in general, what I've seen with boards is that the board members have gotten a lot better. I think, you know, the boards that we work with, um, they're much more proactive than they used to be, um, at least in my 25 years of doing this. You know, it kind of used to be you walk into a board meeting and it would be a rubber stamp to whatever the company wanted to do. And I find the meetings now, because a lot of the board members are more diverse, more qualified, and just really more outspoken, there are a lot of harder questions being asked at at board meetings and i think that's a good thing i think it's mm-hmm. really important for boards to ask the hard questions and make sure that the management team is is really thinking through the issues and and really trying to deliver for the shareholders
1: yeah absolutely mm-hmm. and you know what you're just talking about having an activism playbook for boards and companies that they keep continually refreshing that doesn't just sit on a shelf that they review periodically to see You know, what's changed in the market with the company and how should we adjust so that we're ready if we do get some sort of an inbound?
2: Yeah, I think um, my favorite line with a lot of our clients is be your own activist, right? Really look at yourself critically. And if you were an activist, what would you tell you that you're messing up? Yeah, (laughs) And, And really try to approach your business in that way so that you're ahead of it. Um, you know, because companies evolve and things change and the world changes and the environment changes. And so, you know, if you just keep doing the same thing over and over, that isn't necessarily the best for the company, for the shareholders. And so be your own activist, um, challenge your own team to be better every day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, well, unless you have anything further to add, that's great advice. But um well. Move on, you had mentioned board diversity and and the benefits that a diverse group of directors can bring to the table for companies. And I know you've also been involved with William Blair's diversity efforts. What have you found to be effective there, not just in hiring, um, but it, it seems like one thing that companies and other firms seem to struggle even more with is um, in retaining women and people from underrepresented racial backgrounds as they move up in the ranks?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, recruiting is really important. And so we try to participate and partner with programs that we think make a difference um, from a diversity perspective. So one of the organizations we partner with is IB Recruit. And it's a fantastic organization. It's a nonprofit that was founded by a woman who used to be a banker. And she looked around and she said, wait a minute, like so many talented women are just not even getting the interviews. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to form a nonprofit and I'm going to, Reach out to women, you know, even younger than where banks typically reach out, and I'm going to help them get prepared for the interview process, get their resumes ready, get them prepped um, so that they really go in and get jobs. And she approached me when she was first thinking about the organization, and I jumped at the chance to to work with her. So I joined the advisory board there, and then William Blair was the first corporate partner um and we've gotten some really fantastic women through the program and it's it's grown exponentially so that's you know only one of the ways where we we you know try to recruit diverse talent and then i think the other real key is just retaining them and not just retaining them and having them be long tenured it's retaining them and and giving them a path to be successful so within investment banking at william blair We have a diversity task force, um, for lack of a better term, of which I'm a part of. And, you know, our conversations are centered around how do we get our women, our diverse populations to find mentors? How do we get them to be on the right deal teams, be exposed to the right experiences? Um, How do we help women navigate through having a family? Um, And so we've made... A lot of changes that I'd like to think were long before some of our our brethren on the street, Um, just because not because everyone else was doing it, but because we really try to listen to our people and listen to what we're hearing. They say they need to be successful. Uh, So, you know, for example, I have a, a quarterly call with every single woman in investment banking from analyst all the way up to partner. And we talk about everything from deals to the current environment um, to social stuff or mm. or booty things like what what new lotion are you using? Or have you found a good <laughs> hair dryer? So, you know, it's, it's, it's nice and it really, you know, creates a sense of community and a sense of trust such that when and if there are issues, you know, they know that they have someone who they t- can trust and who they can yeah. talk about those issues with.
0: Yeah. And it's not always glamorous uh to be doing these types of things day in, day out. And it can be time consuming and a lot of work, but it really does pay off for the reasons that you're mentioning and in the ways that you're saying. And it has effects not just in the investment banking industry, but across other professions too. Because, like, you know, I'm in private practice as a lawyer. And so for me, it's important to have connections in the investment banking world. And, um, and so diversity is important to me um, from that perspective of building my own book of business. And so I think what you're doing is um, very important, and I thank you for it.
1: I was going to say, I'll add to that. It's not just, you know, with your network and, and you. It's also the next generation, right? Because the kids see the, the yeah. mothers or the parents working and being able to prioritize certain things at certain times. And it doesn't just become, oh, you know, there's only one worker in the household. Uh, so it's a it's a little bit of a
2: different environment. Most definitely. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that my kids are are proud of me um, and, and my husband, frankly, uh, you know, for, for being two two working parents, It's not always easy, but we try.
1: <laughs> well, there's been a couple of words I've heard you use throughout this podcast has been trust and partner, which I love. Um, and I will ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests. What do you think women in the corporate governance
2: field can add to the current conversation on the role of corporations in society? I think it goes along the lines of what I was saying about the boards earlier. So I think, you know, we we get we are getting better kind of as a nation about getting more diversity in our boardrooms. But it's not going to do us any good and no change is going to happen if those new people are silent participants and kind of, you know, the rubber stamp of doing things the way we've always done them. And so I think one of the keys is having those people who are very talented speak up, ask the questions. I mean, oftentimes I'm in meetings where I'm the only woman and People will be talking about something and kind of in my mind, missing, you know, a a key point or, you know, missing something that could potentially, you know, offend someone or, you know, not go the right way. And I think we need to make sure that we're asking the question, even if, even if we are the only woman or the only diverse person in the room. And so I think that's going to be, you know, one of the keys going forward about really making any any real change happen. That's great. Thank you. It's been wonderful having you on the podcast. Well,
1: it's wonderful to be here. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on this episode of Women Governance Trailblazers. Please subscribe on whatever platform you use for podcasts, and we would love if you would rate us while you're there.
0: Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Christina. Thank you.